Are gluten intolerance and celiac something nurses should deeply understand in relation to their clinical practice and even their own health? Let's dive into the universe of gluten and celiac with expert Nadine Grzykowiak right here on episode 255 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I am so grateful, as I always am, that you're here. Whether you're tuning in for the very first time, welcome, or you've been listening to me and hanging out here on the virtual airways for months or possibly even years. And if it's been years, you get a gold star in your forehead. So thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you and your nursing career, and I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, technology, and beyond. And did you know you can leave a rating and review for The Nurse Keith Show? That's right. Head over to iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Rate it one to five stars. I don't want to influence you. Make your own choice. Write a little review. And if you let me know you did so by emailing me, I will read your review on air and thank you for all to hear. Meanwhile, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, which I highly, highly recommend, you can follow along at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 255. And today we're welcoming very good friend of the pod, Nadine Grzykowiak, the leading expert in nursing on celiac and gluten intolerance, I would say in the country and possibly the world. And Nadine, welcome. And we are going to like dive right into the gluten pool. Okay. 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 Let's do it. So the first question I have for you is why is it important for nurses in the 21st century to understand gluten intolerance, celiac, the differences between the two and why we really need to get our minds around this particular issue? All great questions. And I will say that nurses are in such a unique position to evaluate, meet patients, to assess them, and to really see what their um, symptomology is and if they're at risk for celiac disease. So nurses are of course, the front line, whether they're in the emergency department, in the neuro ICU, wherever they are, they're at the front line for recognizing patients that should be tested and tested correctly for celiac disease proper. So, and it is important because it's it's still grossly underdiagnosed in the United States, grossly unrecognized, and not treated for what it is because it can and does kill people with bowel, you know, bowel cancer, lymphoma, um, all types of cancer actually. And intestinal health is much more important than we've ever been led to believe. So recognizing celiac disease in the whatever form it takes for people individually is so important. And I guess some people would say, nurses, doctors, that it's so complicated that it's impossible to really, you know, nail down what celiac disease is. But that's what I find fascinating, that every person potentially shows up with different symptoms or maybe even no symptoms, but they still have intestinal damage that will um, manifest in so many different ways in symptoms. Okay, that's great. And that concretizes, if that's a term, some of the things that you've taught me over the years, and that 
I still try to like understand the differences. So we're going to get to the differences between celiac and gluten intolerance and talk about all the different judgments people have about it. So okay. are the judgments and the biases, is that what's standing in the way of nurses and others accepting that this is a thing, that this is real? Do people feel like, oh, it's just a fad? I do. I think that people truly believe that it's it is just a fad okay. or that it, you know, that if it did affect them, that they would have to change their diet or their lifestyle also. And that's very scary to people, whether they're nurses or doctors or whatnot. Um, but I see the doctors after they're diagnosed with celiac disease. I see the nurses and the families, um, you know, that are so kind of um, upset that it took nine to 15 years of suffering. Uh, even the doctors, you know, they're, they get mistreated also and misdiagnosed with many other things. So we really do have to overcome this bias or this misunderstanding of what celiac disease is because it really is a poisoning by a, a standard or a staple food that is in everything. So mm -hmm. that is something that, you know, really needs to be addressed is that this bias is from people misunderstanding that wheat, barley, rye, and oats causes organ failure in people that are genetically predisposed for celiac disease, but also it causes inflammation in every body. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter if you're a DQ2 and or DQ8 gene carrier, but it does cause inflammation in every person's body. So if we were going to define celiac disease first, okay, what is celiac disease? So what I, you just explained that that there's damage to organs and those sorts of dysfunctions that happen. So what is it? And then we'll get into how do we identify it? Okay. So celiac disease, by definition, is anyone that is a gene carrier of HLA, DQ2, and or DQ8. So they're genetically predisposed for developing celiac disease, which means if they're eating wheat, barley, rye, or oats, they will potentially at some point in their life, at any point in their life, be triggered into the immune response where your body attacks itself. So it breaks down the intestinal lining. Okay. Which is, you know, some people would call it a leaky gut or increased permeability of the intestinal wall. But once that happens and you're breaking down those that epithelial tissue, it's not just in your intestine, that epithelial tissue throughout your body is affected, which means you have a leaky blood-brain barrier, leaky lung tissue, leaky skin, leaky blood vessels. So think people with POTS or, you know, postural orthostatic tachycardia or hypotension, um, mm -hmm. that's all related. And you're, when you talk about this stuff around the the symptoms what happens to people over time you said at any point in their lives yes and the genetic testing that you understand what the best tests are and how you really get a positive diagnosis where does your knowledge come from aside from studying all this stuff ms grishkoyak 
Well, it actually comes from personal experience. Um, I did have multi-system organ failure that occurred over four years from the time I was 36 to 40. And I found out by accident that I have celiac disease. And despite my tests for celiac disease being negative, so the antibody test and the skin biopsy were negative for celiac disease. I've since learned that those tests are 70% false negative. Not even quite sure. The, The skin test. Well, there's a skin biopsy test, a punch biopsy test. The antibody test, the blood test, is 70% mm-hmm. false negative. Oh, the antibody test is 70% false negative. Okay, so what did they test for you? Was it this gene testing that got you the diagnosis? Well, the fact that I actually, after they drew my blood, I went immediately on a gluten-free diet, that actually allowed me to start to get better. Mm -hmm. But the gene test pretty much confirmed that no matter what, I was going to have celiac disease because I'm a DQ 2.5 homozygous gene carrier, which means I got genes from each parent. So Really? Each parent? Each parent. Whoa. Okay. You got double jeopardy there. Yeah. So pretty much guaranteed to have celiac disease, but I never knew that as a nurse, that's, you know, it's incomprehensible not to have this information, especially when the, in 2004, the NIH actually talked about doing a mass screening for celiac disease in the United States and also a healthcare education program. That was in 2004. And we're now in 2020 and nothing's happened. Nothing has happened. Why? Why has nothing happened? (sighs) And why are we not testing people the way we should be? Good question, too. Okay. So that that enters the politic realm of celiac disease. So if someone listening wants to have a correct test... We're going to have the names of those tests in the show notes, right? Yes, You'll help me have yes. those. And you said it's DH. Oh, HLA, human leukocyte antigen. Human leukocyte antigen. HLA, DQ2 and or DQ8. DQ2 and DQ8. So these are three expressions, three genetic expressions that do they all have to be positive? No. And actually, interestingly enough, you only need to have one, so there's two subunits for the DQ2. You only need one of those subunits. So I am not a geneticist, but I very much understand uh, the genetics of celiac disease. So you really only need an alpha or a beta subunit in order to trigger the celiac disease proper. And to actually express it in your body. Yes. Right. So we have this gene expression, and obviously you were very expressive, and you got really, really sick. And I've read your book, Donation, and yes. that book tells the story of how you almost died Correct. from multi-system organ failure, and nobody would believe you about pretty much anything. That's true. And I worked in the emergency <laughs> department and critical care and trauma and everything. And still no, you know, I, uh, I just think back and I, it's so frustrating to realize that um, this happens to people every day in the medical community, in the community and in, in general. And 
I feel somewhat like we're in a time warp because I've been working on this for 13 years of educating people and whatnot. And it still feels like I haven't made much progress considering the 13 years of (laughs) education and talking and 2000 lectures and all kinds of things. And being a leading a thought leader in this area, even though I know there are people out there, organizations out there who don't like what you have to say. And that's correct. I believe that has something to do with some of the writing you're working on now. Yes, it does. Okay. Now your first book that is out is called Donation. I'm having to have it right here in my hand because it's always above my desk here on my bookshelf. A nurse's memoir of celiac disease from misdiagnosis to food and health activism. So what is this political stuff that's going on that why did the NIH decide not to do mass testing and make recommendations 15 years ago, 16 years ago, 16 years ago. What is going on in that, this community? Okay. So despite the fact that celiac disease is a diet change only a gluten-free diet will heal the intestines It takes six months to a year, and considering that celiac disease is not primarily gastrointestinal, it is primarily neurologic, Mm -hmm. it's uh, it's so enormous. You know, like the whole problem is is enormous. Every type 1 diabetic is a gene carrier for DQ2 or DQ8. So the politics of celiac disease encompasses the fact that we are a for-profit healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So it takes nine to 15 years, if ever, to get diagnosed in the United States, where in Italy it takes two to three weeks. Two to three weeks in Italy and how long in the United States? Nine to 15 years, if ever. And in Italy, you would think there's all this pasta and bread and stuff with, with gluten. You would think You would think Italy would be the people having the biggest problem. They actually do have a lot of celiac disease in Italy. And Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, it's illegal to not serve gluten-free food if you serve food at all. So hospitals, bed and breakfast, restaurants, they all have to provide gluten safe gluten-free food. So the education there is is really well done. And this doesn't mean you go to Italy and you can't eat pasta and you have to just eat a salad with olive oil on it. They serve gluten-free pasta. Correct. And gluten-free bread. So Italy has a large percentage of people who have celiac or gluten intolerance. Yes. And is that because of the diet and et cetera, et cetera, over the years? And is the United States the same? The United States is probably more so at this point. Oh, I know. Um, there are certain populations that have a high prevalence of celiac disease. The Punjabi Indians, by the way, um, they were found to have a super high rate of celiac disease. The Swahari from Northern Africa, one in 18 children. There's no follow-up study that was done, I think, in 2000-something, early 2004. Uh, That's the only WHO-funded study on celiac disease. The people of Mexico City, there was a very limited study, but they found celiac disease at a rate of 1 in 33 for women and 1 in 40 for men. Is that high? Is that considered high? That's super high. Okay. That's 
It's very high. And so um, the United States, because we haven't done a mass screening, we are very behind. And what we're finding, what we know is that 30 to 50% of the population carry the DQ2 and or DQ8 genes. So those genes are very common. Mm-hmm. So at any time in your life, you, those genes can be triggered epigenetics by what you're eating, which would be the wheat, barley, rye, and oats. And then what can happen is people can you know, because of malnutrition, the inability of the intestines to absorb nutrients, people end up with anemia, vitamin D deficiency, pernicious anemia, which is a deficiency in B12. Um, and this plays out in many different ways. Uh, there's a great study from 1966 that um, basically says that people that eat cereal grains uh, end up as schizophrenics. And when the the state hospitals were feeding them gluten-free or cereal-free diets, they didn't have schizophrenia anymore. That was in 1966. There might be some... some person out there going, well, that's, that's impossible, you know, that cereal can't cause schizophrenia. But you're saying that this gene expresses in a way that is, it's neurological. It's not actually, it's not a gastrointestinal disease. You just have gastrointestinal symptoms. Correct. Because of the organ damage. Yes. Because of the organ damage, though, we often think about, or I do, you think about celiac people as, you know, having lots of diarrhea, loose stools, all that sort of stuff, you know, intestinal issues. I've also, you and I have had all sorts of conversations over the years, and I've heard you speak, and I've read your book, etc. And some people can relate it to eczema, to all sorts of skin Mm -hmm. conditions. And you said something earlier about type 1 diabetes, that a huge percentage of them carry one of these genes? A hundred percent. A hundred percent of type 1 diabetics carry one or both. Yeah, exactly. Does that mean they have the disease or they just are a carrier and they can pass it to their children? They're a carrier. They can pass it to their children. They can develop type 1 diabetes at any point in their life. If Mm -hmm. they're an unknowing DQ2 and and or DQ8 gene carrier eating wheat. So we're still not sure what comes first. Is type 1 diabetes preventable if people are on a gluten-free diet? That's a study that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and what we find is that the rate of celiac disease and type 1 diabetes is at least 20%, if not higher. At least 20%. Okay. And now you made a statement to me before we were recording that 44.4% or more of first degree relatives have celiac disease with or without symptoms. Do you mean first degree relatives of anyone who's listening right now? Of anyone that's been diagnosed with celiac disease. So you can begin to see the problems there. We're not sure if it's 44.4% in the general population, which Mm -hmm. if you think about that. That's big. That's enormous. Mm -hmm. Or if it's 44.4% in people that were diagnosed with celiac disease. And if we don't know where all these people with celiac disease are, it really is hard to come up with any very firm numbers. I see. And it sounds like 
here in the United States, some things have not happened that have happened in other countries. Like you just said, Italy, there's a law, an actual legislation passed by their their government that you have to serve gluten-free foods. So when we come back from the break, we're going to get into this whole, the backstory of gluten intolerance and celiac, the dark corners of <laughs> this, the food industry, for instance. Perfect. Oh, and the pharmaceuticals. And pharmaceutical companies, of course. And then we're going to talk about your CEU course. Excellent. The live events you provide and the ways in which people can interact with you in order to become more educated and informed. And this is for the nurses out there. We really need to know this stuff. So we'll be right back and we're going to dig deep into the darkest corners of celiac and gluten intolerance because we need to know. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of the Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty nifty premiums and gifts directly from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nurse Keith. Also, please consider signing up for my newsletter at nursekeith.com so that you can receive my bi-weekly message just for you. Finally, if someone you know could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, even if they do one session, you'll receive credit for one hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. And you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. Remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits over time. What a deal. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So now let's dig back into today's topic. All right. Thanks for hanging out here on the Nurse Keith Show with me, Nurse Keith, on episode 255 and friend of the pod, Nadine Grishkowiak, also known as the Gluten Free RN. And you can find her at glutenfreern.com. So, Nadine, thanks for hanging out for the second half. And we were just intimating before the break that there are some dark corners of the pharmaceutical and food industry that are we could say politically oriented that may be preventing some of this stuff from happening in the United States that has happened in other countries like Italy, where they've legislated gluten-free foods anywhere food is served. And a lot, a lot, a lot of Italians have been tested for celiac. What is going on in the United States? (laughs) Well, honestly, not a lot, not enough. Not a heck of a lot. Okay. Uh, not a heck of a lot. The entities in the United States, which are mostly physicians that came here from other countries, it's Dr. Fasano, Peter Green, uh, Dr. Guandolini, who's sort of retired. Those are the doctors that actually brought attention back in the United States to celiac disease. Fasano actually wrote a paper in 96 asking where have all the celi- American celiacs gone? 
um, because celiac disease did in fact disappear right after 1952 in the United States. There were many articles in the New York Times about celiac disease and research, and um, doctors were actively looking for it and researching it, but not after 1952. And still to this day, there's not a lot of research going on other than for pharmaceuticals. Now, this is the interesting fact, is that Celiac disease is a diet change only, which means you go on a gluten-free diet. And for me, it was eventually a my variation of a paleo diet mm-hmm. to heal the intestines, which they will heal. It takes six months to a year. Neurologically, that damage can take, you know, two to three years. Um, some damage is done and we can't fix it, but we do the best we can. Unfortunately, those doctors and several entities have been trying to come up with a non-dietary treatment plan for celiac disease, a pill, an immunization, a some way to capitalize on the fact that this is, in fact, the largest untapped market in the world. So you have potentially 50% of the population that carries these genes that are at risk for developing celiac disease if they eat wheat, barley, rye, or oats, or the grains. And so it, it would be much easier to just let people know that, but we grow wheat in this country. We grow a lot of it. By the way, that that market is decreasing every year. However, uh, we, we export wheat, we, you know, it's everywhere now, the standard American diet or the SAD. Um, so those doctors have actually been trying to come up with a pill worldwide to capitalize on the fact that it's, it, even though it's just a diet change, we must have a pill because we're Americans, right? We must have, and they have to have something to sell. Mm-hmm. And it's, none of those studies are working out. I just got back from Paris for the International Celiac Disease Symposium there, where, by the way, they did not have gluten-free food at the entire conference. They didn't provide it. There was nothing to eat there at the conference. Um, They've said over and over again that even if they do come up with a pill, people with celiac disease will still have to be 100% on a gluten-free diet. So why all the time money, energy, wasted resources of doing all of um, this research, but not telling people that they actually have celiac disease or actually telling them not to go on a gluten-free diet until they're told to go on a gluten-free diet. There's a lot of um, misinformation that is thrown about in the media and it, and I always tell people, when you are getting your information from the media, please pay attention to who the sponsors are mm-hmm. and advertisers. Ah, uh, Smith, Glaxo, Klein, et cetera, et cetera. So, <laughs> right. So whoever that happens Mills. to be. Right. General Mills. So we might get sued, but that's okay. I don't care. Um, so... <laughs> Can't sue us if it's not, if it's true. That's true. Very true. So, all right. So is this, okay, 1952, post-World War II, it was sort of the the economic boom, post-war boom that was happening. We also had the communist scare in the McCarthy years at the same time, which is interesting anyway, just Mm -hmm. ironical. But this was the time... The 50s was when all of a sudden plastic became this thing. Everything was plastic. Everything became shrink-wrapped and, you know, whatever. And the the industrial 
changes in farming and manufacturing and marketing, everything became much less localized, right? Right. In the the 1920s or 19-teens, wheat was different, right? It wasn't genetically modified. A lot of things were different. It's not supposed to be genetically modified now. People will tell you it's not, but I can tell you there's they find it in fields in the Pacific Northwest all the time. Mm-hmm. It is hybridized to have 50 to 400% more gluten in it because the farmers actually get more money for it. Ah, so because, there's a lot of money involved here. You keep bringing oh, up this yeah. idea of money. And when I look at the cover of Doe Nation, D-O-U-G-H, Nation, it's a um, cutting board with a rolling pin with some, you know, like pie crust rolling around the the rolling pin, but the top side of the pie crust are dollar bills with George yeah. Washington on them. And that <laughs> immediately gives you this notion that money figures in here somewhere. And I could maybe say that this is the medical pharmaceutical industrial complex that came into being after World War II. Correct. Yes. And we, we industrialized food. It's mono agriculture. It's, um, you know, the processed food, you know, they stopped, they told people in the fifties not to breastfeed anymore, that it was much better to bottle feed their babies because they could manufacture, produce and sell formulas for babies that were much better than breast milk. Mm -hmm. How ridiculous is that? Mm Mm-hmm. And so as a culture, we've been educated or manipulated into buying products that we don't necessarily need or that are good for us. It's mostly so that corporations can can make a lot of money really quickly from us. And six to eight corporations actually own all of the food processing in the United States. That's it. Six to eight corporations. So I keep my money locally. I try to make sure that my local farmers... Uh, who are producing fabulous organic, no antibiotic, no hormone food, that they are supported. Yes, they're very supported here in New Mexico, I can say, in Santa Fe. We have an amazing award-winning farmer's market with organic grass-fed, grass-finished meat and bison and buffalo and vegetables and, you know, all of that kind of stuff is happening here, even in the high desert. Oh, terrific. yeah, so there. there's a yeah, there's a lot going on, and you should come check it out. Now, so you're a health advocate because you're a nurse, right? Of course, you have a bachelor's of science like I do, and you also have you're you're a RNBSN CEN. What is CEN again? Certified Emergency Nurse. Oh, that's right. Sorry to all the emergency <laughs> nurses out there. That's right. Um, I was thinking, what does that have to do with gluten? I was like, oh, okay. There's no there's no certification nope. about that's- gluten. I did that for 17 years, so that's a big part of who I am, and I still maintain my certification. As an emergency room nurse. As an emergency room nurse. Good for you. Okay. That's great. I'm glad you do, because people need you. So you're a a health advocate, because you're a nurse, and we're all health advocates, but you're also a health activist. Correct. Because you are calling out these organizations, the whole political, industrial infrastructure, right? That has changed the state of medical diagnosis, of food manufacturing, of food growing. So give us an example then of what a nurse listening now can actually do 
if she or he, one, feels maybe they have it or a loved one has it, or if they want to bring this knowledge to their practice and their colleagues, what do we do and how do we get people to listen to us, which you've been doing for many years? Yeah, for 13 years. And, okay. And uh, it was, you know, really when I started this, when I actually sat down and I was like, tried to comprehend that I had celiac disease, which I'd never heard of, um, mm-hmm. I realized that I'd been duped for many years into believing that what I thought I knew was truth and having to re-educate myself. So unfortunately, it makes nurses and doctors and healthcare providers uncomfortable to realize that what they think they know might not be truth. And so re-educating is important. You can listen to my podcast. You can read my book, Donation. Uh, The Gluten-Free RN podcast is available. There's 74 episodes up there to begin your education. Do your own research. PubMed has a wealth of information from around the world on celiac disease. And you need to spell it C-E-L-I-A-C, which is how we spell it here in the United States, but also C-O-E-L-I-A-C, which is the Latin spelling, to do the research and put in anything. You can put in night terrors, NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. You can put in Uh, pericarditis, you can put in anything with celiac disease, and you will get a wealth of information, especially, you know, glutenataxia. How about um, interstitial cystitis? Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's, uh, bladder, inflammation of the bladder lining. Mm -hmm. My friend Wendy Cohen wrote a great book called The Better Bladder Book, and it's a world resource for people with IC. And people get better. So she has celiac disease too. And and it manifested itself in as I see interstitial cystitis, but she doesn't have that anymore because she's a hundred percent on a gluten-free diet. Oh, now how about irritable bowel syndrome? Oh, you know what I think about that? That that's a, that's a garbage pail diagnosis. And I would always say, what is irritating the bowel? What is mm-hmm. causing the bowels to be irritated? Mm-hmm. It's typically going to be something you're eating. And the number one culprit is going to be the gluten protein and also dairy. So the casein. Uh, so gluten, you'll hear about people being on a gluten-free or and casein-free diet primarily autistic kids, but those proteins are molecularly very similar. So our bodies tend to read them the same. So oh. IBS is definitely in there. You mean the, the molecularly similar that you're, you're saying the molecular similarities between dairy and gluten? Yeah, it's called molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity. Molecular mimicry. Okay, we're going to have to get all these terms into the show notes. You're going to have to help me on that. Okay. okay. Um, we're going to have to remember these. Um, okay. So. Can I say one other thing that's oh, really please, important? Yes. <laughs> so I want people to understand that constipation is a neurologic disorder, it's not a lack of fiber and water. So when people are constipated, the NIH actually has a whole statistic. Um, part on their website about constipation and how much money it takes and, and pharmaceuticals that are used for constipation. It's not a lack of fiber and water. It's neurologic. So, and it tends to be related to celiac disease. 
your intestines get paralyzed by the gluten protein. Hmm, isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Okay. So I hear someone out there raising their hand going, ooh, 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 I have a question. So that person out there is saying, well, what about all these people who come to a party and say, oh, I can't eat anything. I'm on a gluten-free diet. And they don't actually have celiac or don't think they have celiac, but they're on a gluten-free diet. So is it a fad? Is it that people find they just feel better not having gluten? What is it? And I know a lot of healthcare providers are pretty skeptical and judgmental about such people. There's a couple things I have to say about that. One, most people haven't been tested because getting tested in the United States is very difficult. So people are left to their own devices as far as making decision, decisions about their health. And if they feel better on a gluten-free diet because somebody suggested it or and didn't test them or because they're, you know, a friend said, I'm on a gluten-free diet, you should try it too for your arthritis, joint pain, muscle pain, whatever, whatever symptom. And they try it and they feel better. That's a valid clinical trial. You know, that's, that's pretty valid. And you can always get your genes tested. But the antibody test at that point, once you are on a gluten-free diet, should be negative. And if it's not negative, you're not truly on a gluten-free diet. Because you said that stuff gets into almost everything that's manufactured, like ketchup or anything you yes. look at could have something in it that is gluten, right? That's correct. Okay. It's a cheap so, filler. A cheap filler. Okay. So what you're saying to the, the, the naysayers out there is that these folks can't get the right test in the United States because you have to kind of fight to get the right ones, True. right? Yes. And why do we have to fight to get the right ones then? What's wrong? There's a huge knowledge gap for physicians, nurses, healthcare providers. Okay. No one knows what to order or how to interpret it. People really do, you know, if they can get a doctor to order the test, but it's not interpreted correctly or they're IgA deficient and the test can't be positive, that's important to know. So also, you know, a lot of people think gastroenterologists are the purveyors of celiac disease and the only ones that can look for celiac disease, but that's untrue. Any practitioner can order the test for celiac disease. But again, you know, do they... Do they know how to order the test? Do they know how to interpret them? Do they know that the all the blood tests and all and the genetic tests are paid for by insurance? Yes, they are. That was my next question. Yes, they are. Hmm. They're, so, they're, so they're paid for by insurance. So apparently with this medical pharmaceutical complex we're talking about, right, then the insurance companies are not on board with that and they will cover these tests? They, uh, that's a good question. So the, okay. and I still haven't figured out the politics of that yet, but in 2008, the, there was a great article written by the insurance, the journal of insurance medicine that said the sooner people get diagnosed with celiac disease, the less money the insurance industry pays for them. Oh, so they're seeing it actually as a way to decrease costs because people will get better. Correct. But then the medical side and the food production side are on the opposite side of that particular equation. 
Or maybe they're not even involved in the equation because they've removed themselves. Yeah. I can't even. Or they're fighting against this. Yeah. There's, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic of who has a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. And there's very few entities that have a vested interest in changing anything or making anything better in the United States at this point. Okay, I hear that, and I definitely acknowledge that. At the same time, I see that consumer demand is creating this this groundswell of gluten-free foods and you know alternatives yeah. to gluten. So consumer demand is driving that. Yes. Why can't consumer demand drive medical treatment and diagnosis? Because it's really difficult for people to be... Um, self-advocating if they have a a practitioner or a physician or a nurse, you know, anything, any professional provider that won't order the test for them or is, you know, some way, uh, you know, sends people off for, to a gastroenterologist, but then the gastroenterologist doesn't know what they're, what to test for. I see all kinds of things that are huge knowledge gaps, huge gaps in testing, huge gaps in interpretation, huge gaps in understanding that celiac disease is primarily neurologic, um, or that people truly don't have symptoms. So there's a lot of like the Grand Canyon of a knowledge gap and people, you know, are not used to having to advocate for themselves when they go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. So even we nurses, can go to our own physician or even our own nurse practitioner and feel intimidated. It yes. happens to me sometimes where Absolutely. I have a particular opinion, but when you're with this person who's the purveyor of knowledge, you all of a sudden become this non-self-advocating yes. person who just says, okay, doctor, or okay, nurse practitioner, I believe what you're saying. You know, I won't press for this particular thing. So there is, there are... There's power dynamics, there's political dynamics, right? Economics features largely in this, obviously, looking at the cover of your book and reading your story. So economics figure in here that involves the pharmaceutical company, their insurance industry, the medical community, the nursing community, etc. So let's switch gears because we're, we have to wind down and we may have to do a part two sometime when you're, well, actually we'll do a part two when your next book comes out. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. That'll be a biggie. That'll be a biggie. And will that be in 2020? Uh, that's a potential. Okay. It's it's a lot of work, believe it or not to Uh, really. Yeah. (laughs) You're not just writing like (laughs) short stories. I mean, not that writing short stories is hard. You have to do ton of research on this to really get this right. So we'll have you back when the new book is about to come out. But in the meantime, people can go to glutenfreern.com. It's not the glutenfreern.com, right? It's glutenfreern.com. You are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We will have all those links there. Now, Someone out there might be saying, does she have an online course I can take so that I can learn all this stuff from her? And you would say what to that question? So I don't have an online course yet. However, I do have an in-person course that I'm teaching in Oregon in five cities 
uh, coming up in 2020, Eugene actually um, was just done. And it's eight contact hours or continuing education hours for nurses, OTs, PTs, physicians, paramedics, dentists, every specialty, including neurology, dermatology, dentists, if I didn't mention them. <laughs> actually, Michelle Pietzik says, who is a doctor, a pediatric gastroenterologist, that she can diagnose celiac disease with a smile because it shows up in the dental enamel of people's teeth. Mm, mm-hmm. So isn't that interesting? Fascinating. Uh, I know. So um, you can find that information. The podcast is on my website. The course will be as a webinar and an online course in the future, but I don't have a date for when that will be available. But if you want me to come to present the course to your facility, your hospital, uh, please contact me and that can be arranged. Great. Okay. So let's light a fire underneath you and say that maybe this course will come out in 2020. Yes. However, I can also say that listening to all 74 episodes of your podcast will give someone a pretty good grounding in what Nadine Grishkowiak knows. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's all well researched and all of the links it to is. the research articles are there. Right. So you can kind of take a quote unquote course from Nadine by listening to her podcast. Correct. However, this in person course is where you're really gonna get the no pun intended crash course on gluten intolerance and celiac disease. Now, you mentioned you've been a ER nurse for how many years now? Oh, I did I did it for 17 years, but I haven't worked in the ER for the last 12. Okay. But you've done a lot of emergency oh, yes. nursing. And now you've also founded three successful independent nurse-owned businesses, RN On Call, mm-hmm. Gluten-Free RN, and Celiac Nurse Consulting. Now, RN On Call is what? That's my... Uh, healthcare management and advocacy build business mm-hmm. where I have private clients. They pay me a fair amount of money and I manage their health care. I make sure that they're not on any medications that they don't need to be on. They can stay in their home for as long as is humanly possible, well supported and taken care of. And I also do end of life care with that. And is that only in Oregon or is that anyone anywhere? Um Right now, it's only in Oregon, so I manage people's, uh, you know, life, their healthcare, and I am also what's now considered a death doula. Wow. Okay. And hopefully, not too many deaths related to gluten intolerance and undiagnosed celiac disease. But that's even another conversation. Yes, I'm I'm sure you've seen it because you almost died yourself. Correct. So, you also founded the. Gluten-free RN, which is where you do all this educational stuff and activism. Anything else around gluten-free RN specifically that a listener should know who's interested? I also offer consultations for individuals and families, and that is nationally. I I do Skype and phone consultations. I interpret labs for people. I'll be doing that right after this interview um, for a family. So it's it's. Wherever you're at, your family's at, I can help you determine what testing needs to be done or how to get tested and then help you interpret the testing correctly. Now, is that different than your other company, which is Celiac Nurse Consulting? That is more specific to working with hospitals and uh, facilities and the government. So that is a little bit of a different spin. 
I see. from the gluten-free RN. Okay, so you can work with facilities, you can work with organizations, even government entities, you can work with individuals and their families and loved ones, and then you can also educate nurses, PTs, OTs, physical therapists, dentists, and offer them CEUs for a live eight-hour course that gives them those CEUs and a wealth of knowledge straight from your brain to theirs. Yes. <laughs> All <Okay>. of that. <laughs> All of the above. Okay. And we're talking about an online course coming sometime in the near future so that people can take a course online and get CEUs and learn all this stuff Absolutely. from you. At the same time, they can tune in and listen to 74 podcast episodes and learn a pretty fair amount of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Not a lot of fluff in your podcast. It's pretty there's not action packed <laughs> yeah not a lot of like kibitzing around like i do i mean there's a lot of like straight ahead science and very informative information very informative data that we need to know yes I, okay. I tried so let's give some marching orders to the nurse out there who's listening who's like wow i really need to know more about this either for herself or himself or other people. So what's the very, very first thing that nurse should do? Go to my website to look at the listing of podcasts, even just to peruse it to see if there's a title that jumps out. Consider okay. taking one of my online or my in-person courses in Oregon um, or connect with me so that I can bring my course to where you live, where you mm -hmm. are. Uh, and depending where they work, yes. that might be a fight to bring you there, or people might really want you to come and they'll be exactly. falling over themselves to have you come. Exactly. Because I, this is my specialty. I am an expert in celiac disease, and I love to educate people about it, especially skeptical people, people that think it's not a real thing or that it's a fad. I Trust me, I one point probably would have thought the same thing. Give me just eight hours of your time and I <laughs> will absolutely convince you that this is not going to go away. It's not a fad and it's much bigger than anyone has been led to believe. It will blow your mind. Now, I offered for my brother to speak to who's a He's a pharmaceutical researcher in the biotech field, and he loves beer and bread and all that stuff. And he's he is like, no, I don't really want to talk to her. <laughs> so, you know, some people resist it for various reasons. And you do have to consider that gluten and dairy are both addictive. And it people really literally have to detox from them much the way they do from narcotics because they bind to the narcotic, the opioid receptors in your brain. So mm. you have to, I have to take that into consideration whenever I'm talking to people about the power of, of food addictions. Are you saying that people like take gluten rich croutons, they crush them up in a mortar and pestle and then they're snorting them? <laughs> no, just the, the mere, um, fact that they eat them all the time, they actually okay. crosses the blood brain barrier bind and we know that and it, they bind to the uh, opioid receptors which you know i think food is the gateway drug i'm not at all convinced it's pot i think mm -hmm. food is the is the opioid gateway drug so just say no <gasps> would be a good idea just say no to gluten is that, your, no is that your slogan <laughs> just oh that's a good one <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, you know, I, I just taught a class entitled, um, uh, the road to health is paved with good intestines. Ooh, that's a nice one. <laughs> well, Nadine, this is so rich and we're going to have to circle back because your new book is going to go deeper into this mm. darker side of the medical pharmaceutical food industrial complex, right? So that's coming. So we can dig deeper into that once your book comes out and you tell more of the story. Yes. However, for those who are traveling to Italy, understand that things are different there. And if you're gluten intolerant or celiac, you can actually travel safely there. Speaking of travel, before we go, I understand that you actually take people with celiac and or gluten intolerance, you take them on vacations around the world and help them have an amazing fun time while eating in a really healthy manner and not getting sick. Is that true? That is true. Oh that my gosh. True. Where have you taken people? Well, we've... For instance? We've gone on the... And usually it's Amaway... Ama Waterways um, cruises on the rivers in Europe. So we did the oh. Danube twice and we just got back from the Rhine in September, which was gorgeous. Is the Rhine a gluten-free river? No, the Rhine is not a gluten-free river. And the, cru the cruise line itself is not 100% gluten-free, but they are extremely dedicated to taking care of us and making sure that there is no contamination with anything they serve us. Wow. So I work with the chefs. But what about all that beer when you're going through Bavaria? What do you do? Don't drink the beer in, um, <sighs> in Europe. But there are several gluten-free beers that come from Europe. One of them is Greens. And Greens. it's 100% gluten-free. All right. So I know you have various opinions about products that are out there that say they're gluten-free that they're not. Yep. Um, I know there's some of that in your book. And you can actually educate people. So if somebody really wants to get educated, I think the best thing is to email you from your website or Nadine at rnoncall.com. Right? Or Nadine at GlutenFreeRN. Or Nadine at GlutenFreeRN.com. And they can actually make an appointment to speak with you. Correct. Okay. Straight from the Nadine's mouth. They could do that. Yes, and they can order my book from Amazon.com also. It's there and leave a review and a rating if they choose. Okay, great. And we're going to give away a couple books. Excellent. And what we're asking is we're going to give away two books and listeners need to write to me at Keith at NurseKeith.com. I will share your entries with Nadine. We want you just to list three or four things you learned in this podcast about celiac disease or gluten intolerance or any of the other things we've talked about. List them out. Maybe give us a couple sentences about your situation. And we will pick two winners at random and mail you copies of Donation. Right? Yep. Yes, we will. Right. And this offer stands until the end of February, 2020. So act now and get a copy of donation. So Nadine, you're awesome. And we're going to have you back because we're going to have to talk more once the new book comes out or your hint, hint online course comes out. Yes. So we'll work on that and mm -hmm. we will have you back. You're amazing. And I love you and you're, you're an incredible you advocate and activist. And I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Keith. You're awesome too. 
Always have been. Blushing. (laughs) Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to episode 255 of the Nurse Keith Show. And remember that the show notes, you're going to want to check them out. There's going to be a lot there for me and Nadine. NurseKeith.com forward slash episode 255. And remember the book giveaway. You don't want to miss out on that. I want you to take inspired action for yourself personally and in the interest of your career and your patients and your friends and your family and loved ones and communities. Get in touch with me for any needs you might have. And you can also have a conversation with me, Dean, if you would like to do that. Remember to check out the resource drop down menu at nursekeith.com. There's so many things there. There's even now a very affordable online IV insertion video course if you need some instruction on how to start peripheral IVs. There's plenty there for you to peruse. The Nurse Keith Show is expertly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappiespeason is our social media ringmaster. I am grateful to Rob and Mark for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction. So be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Nadine Grishkowiak, the gluten-free RN, bidding you adieu from... Oregon. Beautiful Oregon. Yes. Thank you, Nadine. And we will catch everyone next time.